How are we doing? Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors up at Cedar Rapids, and it is a joy to be with you guys today. I got to be honest, I'm wrestling with some jealousy with this outdoor church. This is pretty sweet, coming out with your bag chairs. My man over here has got like a bag pew. They just kind of unfolded all the chairs. This is, this is nice. I lo- I'm loving it. It's good to be here. Anytime I get a chance to be with you guys, I always just want to say thank you. We have a, a, a church in Cedar Rapids. Uh, because of your vision and generosity and your leadership and your church, and we're so thankful for that. But it's fun to stay connected as family. And, and uh, Mark and Jeff get up sometimes to Cedar Rapids and be able to be down here with you is a, is a pleasure. So uh, we're actually going through a book together. We're doing First Corinthians and, and having fun doing that. You guys are a week ahead of us, so we can uh, look online and steal all the good information for our people. But uh, grab your Bibles. Let's go to work. First Corinthians. Now, have you ever, you ever gotten frustrated with someone else's immaturity? By chuckles, I'm going to say that you're with me on that one. You've been, you've been frustrated by someone else's immaturity. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's your spouse. Don't look at them right now. That would give it away. Uh, but you could be frustrated with someone else's immaturity. They're just not behaving very mature. They're getting angry or, or insecure or jealous or whatever it may be. Like we get frustrated with someone else's immaturity that they show. Or, or maybe it's even at a, at a government level. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, sometimes it's like it seems like we're functioning with junior hires. Like why is there so much strife? And there's, there's just it seems like an immature response to things. And we could be frustrated when we see immaturity in other people. But how about for yourself? Have you ever gotten frustrated with your own immaturity? Like, why am I acting this way? Why, why am I so angry about this? Why am I responding this way? Why am I behaving? Like, you, looking at your own behavior, you're frustrated with your own immaturity. So, so yesterday was the Salt Golf Classic. How many people here played, played some golf? Okay. Yeah. I don't golf, so I should have very low expectations. But why, when I golf, there's moments where I just want to break every club in my bag. Like I just get, fr- and then I'm like, why do I feel that way? Why do I get so bothered? It's it's a game. It's it's simple. I'm you know I'm supposed to be having fun. Have fun, right? You just like you get frustrated and you like look at your own immaturity and wonder like why am I behaving this way? What do you do when you see immaturity in the church? Hypothetically, right? I mean, what, what do you do if you see immaturity in the church? Like there's a people like I'm a Christian and yet I'm just so full of anger. or I'm a Christian and I just don't want to talk to those people or I have nothing to do with those people. Or, I'm a Christian and I'm just full of jealousy and insecurities all the time. Like what do you do when you see immaturity in the church? Or, or let's put it this way. What do you do when Christians are not acting like Christians? So first Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter three. We got the whole chapter today. Uh, so chapter three. Uh, 1 Corinthians, open up your Bibles, turn on your phones, that's where we're going to be. Now, in the last section uh, that Jeff worked through uh, in in chapter 2, Paul introduced two types of people in that section. You have natural people and you have spiritual people, or you have uh, believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians. He kind of says natural and spiritual. Let me just read the last few verses in chapter 2 to get us a running start into chapter 3, and you'll see him introduce these people. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord 
so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So you get these two types of people introduced here. You got natural people and spiritual people. Now in our section, Paul's going to introduce a third type of person that's a little bit more confusing. He's going to introduce spiritual people who act like natural people. He's going to, I'm going to tell you about a third group of people. These are, these are Christians who seem to be driven by their flesh. Let's look at the first three verses in chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And I'm, Hold on. I got to adapt to the wind and preaching in sunglasses. It's like a dream come true. So <clears throat> he says, I fed you with milk, not, um, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So you have like, hey, I'm calling you brothers. You are in Christ, but I can't address you as spiritual people that you are, that I hope you are. Uh, you're, you're not ready for that. You're, you're, you're being driven by the flesh. So there's this kind of oxymoron happening in these verses. And I used to think an oxymoron meant a group of eight morons, but it doesn't. It's like when you have uh, two words that, that are kind of put together that you think, those things don't go together, right? Like fun run. Those things don't go together. There's nothing fun about running. Like I don't get why people do that. Or jumbo shrimp. It's not, you know, those just don't work together. Or adult children. Which one is it, right? You can have an adult son or daughter, but adult or child. Like you, you'll let you figure that out. We've got a lot of college kids here. But these are, these are things like they don't go together. Why do we put these things together? And here you have something. Maybe you've heard of this term, a cardinal Christian like a carnal Christian, like a, we get that from the word that Paul uses for flesh. Like think of like carnivore. That doesn't mean you're a meat-eating Christian, but he's talking about you're a Christian that's kind of driven by the flesh. Like what, what's happening? I think there's a couple errors that people make when it comes to this idea. Either you like completely deny the idea that Christians can still struggle with sin and flesh. And like, no, that's just not something Christians do. But it's like, well, Paul's addressing that. He's saying, hey, this is, this is an issue. Or you go on the other side and you think like, maybe you made a profession of faith in junior high at Bible camp, but you've lived a life like driven by your flesh. You have no like evidence of faith. And people are like, well, he's a Christian. He's just kind of a carnal Christian. It's like, well, maybe he's not a Christian. Like maybe, maybe the evidence of flesh are dominant. Like wh- where do you fall here? And, and Paul's talking about people that are, are spiritual or they're, they're brothers, but you seem to be driven by your flesh. And what he's saying is your behavior and your identity are contradictory. Like, they, don't, they don't go together. You claim to be this, but you behave in this way, and, and that, that shouldn't be so. So either you're not who I think you are, or you're, you don't understand who you are, or you're not representing who you are very well. But either way, he's saying, staying, staying this way is not an option. Like, staying in this condition is, is not an option, and he's He's not pulling any punches. He's essentially calling them like, you're, you're a bunch of babies, right? You're, you're infants. Like, he's not like, you know, not like in a cute way, like, oh, a little baby Christian, like puppies or something. It's, he's saying, no, like, you're like an adult who still wets himself. Like, this is not something to be celebrated. Like, you got issues, you got problems. You're acting like a bunch of babies. You know, you still need the bottle. Like, he's kind of being up front with them, saying, like, look at yourself, like, look at yourself. You're full of, like, envy or, or strife and jealousy and divisions. Like, this shouldn't be celebrated. Like, we got to address this. He goes on, verse 4, he says, 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being, and I love this, merely human? Like there's an expectation greater than just being merely human. Like we need to be superhuman, which you'll see. There are greater expectations for believers. But he's saying, you're just acting just like every other human being. And you're called to something higher than that. And your immaturity is being is evident in your divisions. Because that always happens. Some people are like, well, I'm with Paul. They're like, well, I'm with, I'm with Apollos. It's like, well, I'm with Cephas. I'm with Peter. And then that real spiritual person is like, well, I'm with Jesus, right? And they kind of have these, these groups. And he's like, your immaturity is evident or it's showing in your divisions. Like you're showing more allegiance to the leaders of the church than the Lord of the church. You're showing more allegiance to the leaders of the church than the Lord of the church. And listen, having a lot of leaders is a good thing. To imagine to sit under both Paul and Apollos and to kind of have these, these mega uh, you know, church fathers speaking into your life is, is a good thing. Now, one of the things that you might have recognized just culturally of Veritas, both your church and our church in Cedar Rapids, is a, a value in a culture of plurality. Like we love multiple voices and, and different leaders and not trying to build a church around one person's gifts or personalities. Like we're all kind of sharing leadership and plurality and with a plurality of elders and, and different people speaking on stage. Like we, we love that. Now, how foolish is it or how, how, how difficult is it when people in the church might be like, well, I, I like Jeff, right? Or, well, I'm, I'm a more Mark guy. Or it's like, well, I, I really miss Drew. I like when Drew comes back. Or I like when, when Jake comes down. You kind of draw these divisions. And for us, it's like, like we're all on the same team. And like what we're working for is your closeness to God. We want to see you grow close in Jesus. We want to see you thrive in that relationship. But sometimes people can like draw these lines. Like we had uh, we had Jeff up a couple weeks ago and, and somebody last week came up to me and said, man, wasn't it great when Jeff came it's just really nice to have a solid Bible teacher. I'm just like, wow, I guess uh, I'll just tell you some jokes and we'll just go home then. I don't know. But it's like we can kind of gravitate. And listen, like different leaders bring different things to the table. And we love that. It's, it's for the good of the body. But, but in our sinfulness, we can kind of tribe up. We can kind of draw these divisions. And now what's happening here is like, like this is ridiculous. And, and you could take a good thing and you, you make problems out of it, which is another sign of immaturity. Like immature people don't handle good things well. So Paul comes into Corinth. He's like, okay, I'm going to talk to you about grace, but then you're going to go and think you can do whatever you want sexually. Like that's where you're going to go. Are you going to have all this plurality of leaders, but you're going to then turn that into divisions? Or you have this new family, like both Jews and Greeks are in the family of God. Like the wall of hostility is coming down. You're calling people that you didn't even like before brothers, but now you're using that just kind of strife and, and jealousy. Like, like that's what's happening now. On top of that, uh, the Corinthians kind of prided themselves on wisdom. Like they, they were smart. They had the answers. They, they were the debaters. They had knowledge. They kind of had a, a puffed up perspective or a pride of their own wisdom. So this is literally like the worst case scenario. Not only are you acting like babies, but you think you have all the answers. Not only are you acting so immature, but you think you have it all put together. Like you don't even see yourself accurately. In fact, some of the times I get on uh, and, and watch Jeff or Mark preach to find some gems. And I think, I think a couple weeks ago, Mark told a story about uh, a Thanksgiving football game 
where he is that right, Mark? Where you like, yeah, and he could kind of control the narrative, and he wanted to make this kid feel good, and he can kind of tap the ball up in the air until he gives him the catch, and we all celebrate. Um, this is not that story. He's much more godlier than I am. So there was a kid in my neighborhood one time who thought he was pretty good. Uh, he was like a seventh grader that must have made the A team at school, and he started talking trash like he could he could beat me, and it was just fun. Like, and then in this conversation, I realized like, oh you really think you could beat me. So it's like, let's go play. He's like four and a half foot. You know, it's like a little guy. It's like, let's go play. Let's one-on-one this thing. So I'm backing him down. I'm not letting him score a point. Like he brings it in, whack, you know, just get it out. Like, you know, get that out of here. I'm just like shaming this kid. I'm like, hey, this is for your own good and my enjoyment right now. This is what's happening here. Um, but it's like, you, you're puffed up. You really think you can beat me, right? So it's like, I didn't even let him score a point. Like he went home crying. No, I don't care. I don't know if he went home crying. Maybe he did. Maybe he went to his room, cried. Maybe he didn't quit basketball. Maybe he's in counseling. I don't know. But it was like when you have that much pride, like when you, when you think you, you're, you're kind of in that place, if someone that level of pride, what do they need? Like what's the opposite of pride? Humility, right? And we, we think, okay, humility is good or pride's bad. Humility is good. We, we want humility. So how do you help someone else grow in humility? Is that even a perspective we should have? Is that what Paul's trying to do? How do you help somebody else grow in humility? It's like, well, you humiliate them. Like, no, that's not the answer. That's not what Paul's doing here. Uh, my basketball story is not a good example. It was fun. I think it was helpful. Uh, but don't, don't do that. What Paul's doing is something a little bit deeper here. I mean, he's being honest with them. Like, I'm going to call it how I see it, and I think you're acting like children. But, but he's getting deeper than that. And when Christians aren't acting like Christians, Paul wants to address more than just their behavior. I'm not talking about just jealousy. I'm not talking about just the strife. I'm not talking about just the divisions. Like, let's get underneath that. Like, why are you acting the way that you're acting? What's driving that behavior? Why do you have the attitude that you have? Why, why are you so full of strife? Like something's missing here and we need to kind of get beneath the surface to look at that. So that's what we're going to see him do. Verse four again, he says, for when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What, what is Paul? Like, who, who are we? Who are we? He says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, this is Paul talking, I planted, which probably just means like I started the church there. I went to Corinth, I planted this church, I began this work. Apollos watered, as in he came in after me. It was a leader that was raised up there and he began to do leadership. So I got it started and he continued to, to care for you. But God gave the growth. So neither who, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So we're, we're at work. We're serving you. We're serving God. We're doing this. You're benefiting. But, but everything that's happened, it, this is God's work that he just used through us. So it's not like, well, Mark led me to Christ or, 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 or Jeff baptized me. It's like, yeah, they may have kind of been used by God in that, but all the fruit in your life is, is a work of God. And God is doing this work and he causes it to grow. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one, like we're on the same team, and each will receive his wages. So there's an idea of rewards. We'll see that come up further down. His wages according to his labor. 
for we are God's fellow workers. Now, that doesn't mean like God, Paul, and Apollos are kind of on the same level uh, as teammates. It's like, no, Paul and Apollos were fellow workers, but we're God's fellow workers. God is our boss. He's directing this thing. He's leading it. He says, you are God's field, God's building. Like this has been about your thriving as a follower of Jesus. And then he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. I love how Paul says this, like, okay, let's just recognize I do got some skills, right? I, I did come in there. I did do this because I don't want you to uh, overvalue leadership, but I also don't want you to undervalue leadership. Like if this was Legos, I'm a master builder. Like I came in there and, and I had skill and we started this thing. He said, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now that someone else are other leaders that are being brought up in this church. Not just Apollos, but a lot of people. It's like, well, I'm going to lead this group and I'm going to lead this group. There's, there's other people that are kind of rising to the top and their voice has influence among this, this church community and, and they're providing leadership. So this someone else is building upon it, building upon what Paul started when he planted this church. And then he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. So that's like a little warning to those leaders. Like, hey, I started this thing and other people are building upon it. And now someone else uh, is building upon it. Now you take care how you build upon this foundation. You take care how you, you lead this church, these people. Like leadership matters and he's kind of giving them a bit of a warning. Now, I think he primarily has leaders in mind here But he's also in the context of addressing everyone's struggle of spiritual immaturity. So so all of us can find application to this. Uh, He's addressing like, hey, leaders, you need to pay careful attention on how you lead God's church. He loves his church and leadership matters, right? But, but it's in the grand context of like, I'm addressing spiritual maturity and strife and jealousy and division. So, so all of us have some application to find in this as a leader how you lead matters, right? How you lead matters for, for pastors and elders in this, in this congregation. Like, listen, we'll give an account, Hebrews 13. Like, we're going to give an account and how we lead matters. We should care about people's souls and their closeness to, to God. Like, th- this is a, a weighty thing, and we should, we should feel the weight of that. As leaders, how we lead matters. But as, uh, as followers or as just as individuals, um, how you live matters. How you live matters. How you apply the word of God to your life. How you, how you live in a way that honors Christ. Like you're, you're going to claim Christ, but then you're going to be full of, of jealousy and strife and envy and greed and lust. It's like those that structure doesn't go on that foundation. Like that's a visual oxymoron. Like if you think of it in, uh, to stay with kind of the building analogy, think of like an HGTV show of like, you know, you're seeing the house and it's like, yeah, Paul laid this foundation of Jesus Christ. And, and we, we took it from there and we built and over here, we got a gluttony room. And then if you kind of go in the back hallway, there's a whole room for lust. And then we go over here and we got this set up for envy and we have all our strife over in this corner. Like you think, no, we need demolition day again. Like that, those walls don't go on that foundation. Like that's a visual oxymoron. Those things don't go together. Like that's not how you build upon the foundation of Christ 
He goes on, verse 11, he says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. If anybody else comes in and tries to lay another foundation, like Don was saying before at the end of this book where Paul says, I I talked to you about what's of first importance. Like this is the foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, who Christ is. So if somebody comes in or if we send somebody out, we plant another church, that church better be about Jesus. Like that's the foundation. And if somebody comes in and says, hey, Jesus is nice, but we really need to get on this track. It's like, no, different team. Like we're, our foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, what, what foundation? The, the foundation, right? So if somebody's trying to lay a different foundation, different team, we're not playing that game. But for those that come in and try to build on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, okay, that's our team. If they kind of try to build on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each, one, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day of like the return of Jesus is going to make some things evident because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So you get this idea of our works or how we lived our life will be, uh, will be tested. Like our works will be tested. It says if the work that one, anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. So this idea of rewards, um, of how you live matters, and, and there are rewards for how you live after this life. However, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, although he himself will be saved. So what do you mean he'll be saved? Because you're not saved by works. You're saved by Jesus Christ, and he's building on that foundation. That's, that's what saves us. And then he says, but only as throw fire. So it's, you get this kind of analogy, like you, you may be standing with kind of a house burnt down around you and you're just, all you got left is the foundation. Now that's all you need for salvation, but, but you may smell like smoke at the end of this judgment. Our, our salvation's in Christ, but your works and how you live will be judged. They will be judged. And he says, only as though through fire. Now, He's using some building analogies here. Um, and he starts talking about building materials like gold and silver and precious stones and then wood, hay, and straw. And I don't know if it's just my own intellectual level. Um, we'll see if you can identify. But when I first read that, I automatically think of the three little pigs, right? You got the, the wood, hay, straw, and different people building a house and using different material. Um, and if you, you read the original... Three little pigs, like if you build the house out of straw or, or sticks, right? And the big bad wolf comes and he huffs and he puffs and then what? He blows his house down. Do you know what happens next? He gets eaten, right? If you read the original, it's like there are consequences to your actions. That's the lesson, like you're going to get eaten. Now on the updated version, we don't want to like, you know, spank anybody's inner child. So we got to be comfortable. He's like, no, you can just run to your brother's house everything will be okay. There's not really consequences. But in the original, there's like, there's consequences. So the, the three little pigs, they build houses out of different material and judgment comes, or you're going to be tested. Like, okay, the wolf's coming. Like, can this withstand that? And, and what you built gets tested. Now, listen, uh, for the Christian, it's not about the wolf coming. We got, we got a shepherd, right? We got a shepherd. We, we don't need to be worried about the wolf, but there is a building inspector coming. 
And there is a, like, I'm going to, is, is this what you did with your time? Is this what you did with your life? Is, is this how you honored me? Like, the, like our works will be inspected in that. Now, and he talks about there's rewards and losses that you will feel. Despite salvation, there's, there's rewards and losses that, that you will feel. In fact, um, further down in, in chapter four, um, I got my Bible all clipped together. But he, ta- he talks about um, when Jesus returns. I can't turn the page, but trust me, it's there. If you got your Bible, turn the page. It's chapter four, uh, verse five. He's talking about when Jesus returns, can in that day, when, when things are brought to light and the, the motives of the heart are revealed, he says, you will receive your commendation from God which that's our reward, our, our accommodation from God. Basically, maybe if you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where, where Jesus says, you know, those workers will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, I mean, oh, to hear those words, right? At the end of our life, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And in that parable, what happens is, hey, you were trusted with little, you will be given much. You will be given much. In fact, in Revelation uh, 14, he's talking about people that are kind of persevering through a difficult time and they're abiding in Christ. And when they die, it says, may they rest rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. For their deeds follow them. Listen, how you live matters. How you live matters. How you live matters eternally, eternally. So this strife, this, this envy, these divisions, he's like, that's not okay. That's, that's not okay. Or maybe a more accurate uh, way to put it, he's saying, that's not fitting. That's not fitting. That doesn't go on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Like, we got we to gotta address this. Now, remember, this is about addressing their, their immaturity, Christians are, are acting worldly. And Paul, he's not just saying, hey, strife, envy, division, stop it. Just stop it, right? He's, he's not doing that. He, he's telling them there is something better to live for. There, there's something better to live for than this life that we get wrapped up in. Like, Don't forget God. Don't forget his return. Don't forget rewards to live for. Don't forget this. Like, there's, there's more and something better to listen or to, to live for. Because listen, before the misbehaving Christian is rebuked, which is coming in this book, as we kind of uh, get further into this book, there's going to be some really specific issues Paul addresses. But before the misbehaving Christian is rebuked, they first need to be reminded. Would you listen to that? Before the misbehaving Christian is rebuked, they first need to be reminded, guys, this is what life is about. This is what life is about. It's about God. And he's coming back and he will reward his people. And there's, you're going to need to have a bigger perspective. Like you need, you need to remember what life is about. And, and you need to remember who you are. You need to remember who you are. In fact, rebuking you on whatever issues come up later in this book, sexual immorality, church practices, uh, marriage, divorce, whatever the issues come up, like uh, in, in trying to rebuke you on those issues, like th- those things aren't even going to make sense if you don't know who you are and what life is about. Like trying to rebuke you on sexual immorality or these other issues that you're going to see later in the book, they won't even make sense. You'll think it sounds ridiculous unless you know who you are 
and what life is about. So, so keep that in mind as we keep working through this book. Um, so much is connected to our, to our identity. <clears throat> and sometimes we forget, don't we? We forget. We forget who we are. We forget what life is really about. We settle for lesser missions. Like we make life about climbing the corporate ladder or, or finding success and value in different things or, or accomplishing this agenda or mission or seeing this issue improved. We, we kind of settle for lesser missions. I didn't say good or even noble, but, but lesser when we're called to the kingdom of God and spreading his glory throughout the earth. Like that's what we're called. Like don't forget what life is about. Or sometimes we settle for lesser identities. When you think, like, who are you? You might give a name. It's like, no, that's, that's your name, but who, who are you? It's like, well, I'm a teacher. It's like, no, that's what you do. Who are you? And we kind of like, well, I'm, I'm the funny guy, or I'm the strong guy, or I'm the smart guy, or whatever it may be. Like, we kind of settle for lesser identities. And listen to me, guys. They're having a behavior problem because they have an identity problem. You, you got to get that. Otherwise, all you're going to do is just try to change people's behavior. They're having a behavior problem because they're having an identity problem. Look at the verse part of six, verse 16. Do you not know? Now, sometimes you hear kind of a similar language from Jesus as he's talking to the Pharisees. Like, don't you know or haven't you read? And he's saying, hey, do you not know? Like, this is the problem. You don't know something that you should know. And if you knew this, then they would kind of directly impact the, the root of the issue or the problem. You, you, you're not getting something in your brain. Like you don't know something and you need to know this in order to correct the problems that you have. So it says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's like, do you know that? Do you know who you are? You know that you're God's temple and that his spirit dwells in you? Now, in the line of kind of these building analogies, this actually helps us make sense of some of the building materials that got listed earlier of gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. See, in this time, if you kind of would follow building codes, homes homes in this time would be built with wood, hay, and straw. And people, people or, or mere humans would live in these homes. But a temple by building code would be built with gold and silver and precious stones. And God's live in temples. And he's saying, you are God's temple, like the real God, the living God. You're God's temple. Like God dwells in you. His spirit dwells in you. Like it doesn't make sense for you to conduct yourself with, with wood, hay, and straw. God lives in you, so your life should be fitting for God who dwells in you. Like you, what you do, how you live, your actions should honor God. It should, it should be a fitting home for God. It's how you live matters. Why? Because God lives in you. Like that's the motive of morality. It's not just like do it because you're supposed to. Like God's spirit dwells in you. Make, make your life a comfortable home for God. Now, when he says you or God's temple, it's, it's Southern, right? It's y'all, it's the plural. He's like, y'all God's temple. Not, not just you like in, in uh, chapter six, he, he says something similar, what is more individually. Uh, he's like, don't you know that your body is a temple of God? So, so yes, you individually, but in this context, he's talking about y'all, like the church. He's saying, y'all God's temple. 
all of us, like together, which, which speaks to something precious about the gathering of the church in this time, what is kind of confusing about gathering, like how important is it to gather? Because he's saying something unique happens when God's people gather. Like there's a unique experience of God's presence when God's people gather. And one of your motivations for wanting to gather together as a church, it's like, I want to be with God's people so that I can experience God's presence like in a way that I don't get when I'm just at home with my Bible. Like you should do that, and that's important, but there's something unique, like a unique experience of God's presence in our lives when God's people corporately gather together. And you should hunger for it. Like I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait to get to, I can't wait to corporately sing God's praises and learn from different people and and fellowship with others because there's an experience of God's presence that happens when God's people gather. And he's saying, y'all are God's temple. And God's presence it dwells among you when you're together. How awesome is that? Like, don't, don't take this lightly. Like, don't, 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 take this, don't take this lightly. Like, gathering together is an important thing. And we experience God's presence in a unique way. And he goes on to say this, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Okay, anytime, anywhere in scripture, it says God will destroy him. Let's just slow up a bit, okay? Let's look at that. Now, what's happening here when he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, which is who? Y'all, the church, right? If anybody destroys my church, my people, God will destroy him. Now, what's happening here is I think this is both a warning to false teachers and an affirmation of the church's value. Because this is a, a, a letter that's being read aloud to the whole church, And you're going to have some of those people causing division, some of the false teachers in there that are trying to build a a different foundation of Jesus. And you have the whole church body that are hearing this. So this is both a warning to false teachers, like, hey, you mess with my people, I'm going to end you, right? And this is an affirmation to how precious and valuable the church is. Like, think of it this way. Let's say my daughter's going to go on a date. Right? And, and her date picks her up at the door, and they're about ready to leave. And, and in front of her and her date, I say to him, right, hey, if you hurt my daughter, I will fully embrace a prison ministry, and you'll help me get there. You understand me, right? Now, if he gets the warning, but my daughter hearing that is like, oh, my dad loves me. He wants to protect me. He cares for me. And he's like, this is affirming like how valuable the church is to God. How, how precious it is. He goes on, this is why he says, for um, or because God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You're holy to God. You're set apart to God. You're, you're, you're special to God. You're loved by God. You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. If anybody tries to destroy you, God will end them. And you're holy to God. You are that temple. Now, how awesome is that? And perhaps Rudy and kind of chasing our behavior problems to its root, maybe we don't dwell on that truth enough. Maybe that's the source of some of our behavior problems. Because you got to get this. Who you are shapes how you are. Who we are shapes how we are. You could, you could put it this way if you're a note taker. Knowing who you are in Christ lines you up to live for Christ. Knowing who you are in Christ lines you up to live for Christ. I say lines you up because when we were golfing the other day, 
you're like, there's a lot of golf analogies. Do you like make this sermon on the golf course? No, I didn't. But it's like when we were golfing the other day, there's times where I would hit the ball and like the green's over here and my ball would go straight, but it would go way over there. I'm like talking to them like, what am I doing wrong? It's like, well, you were aimed over there. It's like, well, that would have been helpful like three seconds ago before I swung to tell me that. Like, hey, aim for the hole, right? But sometimes we're, we're just aimed at the wrong direction. And when our identity is off, our aim is off. When our identity is in Christ or knowing who you are in Christ, it lines you up to live for Christ. If you think your identity is just a mom or a, a boss or a student, or an employer, or whatever your profession is, then, then that's where you're aiming. So when it comes to where joy comes from, where value comes from, what's going to validate you, what, what success looks like, that, that's where you're aiming. But if your identity is, I am a child of God, God's spirit dwells in me, I'm holy to God, well, then that sets a different trajectory. That's a different aim when it comes to what's important, what's not important, and how I react and how I behave and where I find my value and where I find my joy. It's knowing who you are in Christ. It lines you up to live for Christ. It lines you up. Listen, identity for the Christian. Identity sets the trajectory for maturity. For the Christian, identity sets the trajectory for maturity. You, you got to know who you are. It's kind of like saying you got to know what you're aiming at. One of the holes yesterday, like I pulled out my three wood and everybody else pulls out their pitching wedge. I'm like, okay, I'm not that bad. Like what, what's wrong? I was shooting at the wrong hole. Like in my fence, like they're all green. They all got a flag. Like I thought we we're going that way, but like the holes right there, I would have used the wrong club. I would have made terrible decisions. Like knowing what you're aiming for affects what clubs you use, right? Knowing who you are affects how you live. It, it, it determines the choices you make. Like, you, you got to know who you are. It shapes how you live. It also sets the stage for rebuke. Because later on in this book, when we get to some specific issues, like when you know who you are, that sets the stage for rebuke. Because if I'm a child of God, if I'm, a, if I'm a, uh, God's temple and his spirit dwells in me, then, yeah, those choices don't make sense. And I, I should yield to that. Like, it sets the stage for rebuke as well. But it's so easy to get sucked into just living for this world. It's so easy to just get sucked into it because this is what's right in front of us, right? This is what we deal with day in and day out. So it's easy to get sucked into the kind of worldly way of thinking that, boy, if I had that size of house, then I would be happy because that's what I'm dealing with all around me. Or if I got that promotion, then I would finally and, you know, find joy, or if I got in that relationship, or if I got out of that relationship, or whatever it may be, it's like, this is the world, like, it's tangible, and we can get sucked into this thinking of, well, I'm living for this. This is what, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm striving after. This is what's going to give me value. We kind of get tricked, tricked into thinking that this world is all there is. In fact, he goes on to look at verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself, or, or, or don't be tricked. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Like if, if, you, if you believe in, in God in this context, maybe you think, oh, that's foolish. Like you need to live like with, with this worldview. It's like, well, you're going to have to let go of that and kind of embrace this foolish path of embracing God. It says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are fruitile. It's like, it's, it's not going to end well that way. Don't be deceived into thinking that this life is all that there is. There's more to it. There's more to it. You can get wrapped up into living for just this age. But then he goes on and he says this, verse 21. So let no one boast in men. That was their problem. That was their problem. I'm with Paul. No, I'm with Apollos. Like just kind of boasting in people, kind of finding their status. I mean, we do it. There's this idolization of different, either whether it's sports figures or political figures or political parties, or this is my tribe, or this is my people, or this is my group. And we kind of idolize that. And we're kind of chasing after things, you know, the striving for, for the wrong things for our value. It's like, it's making you look childish. It's making you look childish. So how does Paul confront their pride? How does he lead them into humility? He does it by reminding them of their identity. Or let me put it this way, because it's more powerful than that. He humbles them with their identity. Look at verse 21. Tell me if this isn't humbling. So let no one boast in men for, or because, this is why you don't have to boast in men, all things are yours. All things are yours. If you, you belong to God, you, you, you are God's temple. His spirit dwells in you. You're united with Christ. You're in Christ. Why are, you trying to, why are you trying to be with just Paul? Like you're in Christ. Don't settle for Paul. Don't settle for Apollos. Like the world is yours. Like all things are yours. Everything is for you. The, all this is yours. Keep, let's keep reading. Verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Paul's yours. Apollos is yours. Cephas or Peter's yours. This world is yours. This life is yours. Death is yours. You won't, death doesn't beat you. Not in Christ. Like all of this is yours. Now that's humbling. It's not humiliating. Like it doesn't leave us thinking like, oh, I'm a terrible person. I need to get better. Like, no, it's humbling in like this overwhelming goodness. Like why me? Why would I be treated this way? Are you kidding me? Like all is mine in Christ. Like it, it, it kind of humbles you in this overwhelming goodness type of way. Like when we think of pride and humility, sometimes it's lopsided a little bit. Like we know it's not humble to just kind of brag, right? To brag about yourself. Um, it's like, okay, that's obvious pride. But humility is also not self-deprecating. It's not humble just to kind of ridicule yourself, right? Like when you're just like, oh, I'm so fat. You kind of pause waiting for somebody to say, no, you're not. You're beautiful. It's like, well, maybe you're fat. I don't know. Like, yeah, but you're kind of looking for just like, you know, reaffirming in these things. Real humility is not self-deprecating. That's just another way of being obsessed with yourself. That's just another way of constantly thinking about yourself. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I wish I was better at this. I wish I looked like them. I wish I had those grades. I wish I had those jobs. You're just thinking about yourself all the time, maybe in a negative way, but you're still self-absorbed. Real humility is this freedom to not be so consumed by yourself, whether you think you're great or you think you're bad. Real humility is being set free to just be just be consumed with God and, and concerned with other people. And the gospel gives us that freedom. God's saying, I have thought of you, so you don't need to do that anymore. I have loved you, so you're set free from being kind of fighting for your own status. I have given you status in Christ. Like we, we've been empowered, or let me put it this way, this is a truth that empowers humility in us. Like I'm okay being lowly now. 
because I know the inheritance to come. Or I don't have to prove myself to you, or I don't have to be so stressed about your acceptance because I've been accepted by the king of the universe. Like what freedom in that truth. But when you're full of strife and jealousy and division, it just shows an ignorance of our inheritance. Like, don't you know who you are? Why are you, why are you acting like this? Like that, that kind of behavior doesn't make sense. And guys, this isn't just like, hey, don't be jealous. Don't have strife. Don't have division. This is better news than that. This is, you don't have to act that way anymore. That behavior is not fitting for a child of God who, who owns everything in Christ. Like you're set free from that behavior for the Christian. Our identity fuels our humility and our humility kind of cultivates our unity and maturity. And we got to come back to who we are in Christ, who we are in Christ. So here's application. The next time, I'm going to say the next time because it's going to happen. The next time you find yourself kind of driven by your flesh, frustrated with your own immaturity. Why am I acting this way? Why am I giving into this? Why do I feel this way? Why do I think this way? The next time you kind of find yourself giving into your flesh, don't just focus in on your behavior and say like, I'm going to stop that. Never going to do that again. I'm done with this. I'm going to get better here. And you're just kind of consumed with your behavior. Instead, come back to who you are to realign how you behave. Dwell on your identity in Christ. Like correct your behavior, but first come back to who you are in Christ, it realigns to help correcting your behavior make sense. Or the next time somebody else is being driven by their flesh, a brother and sister in Christ, somebody in your connection group, don't just first jump all over their behavior. Hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Instead, help them come back to who they are in Christ in order to realign their behavior. It's what restoring somebody gently looks like. It it makes obedience joyful. Of course that makes sense because this is who I am. Like God's spirit dwells in me. So church, listen, I don't know if I've gone long or not, but I'm done here. Okay, so look, look up here. You are not merely human to live like everybody else. You get that? Seriously, do you know who you are? Do do you know who y'all are? Do you know how God feels about you? We we are God's temple. His spirit dwells in us. We're holy to him. We're heir with Christ. We're in Christ. It's all ours. So may how we live reflect that reality. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this church. As I look out, just so many dear people that love you and have sacrificed even for us to have a church in Cedar Rapids. And as we live in some really crazy times where it's easy to find division and strife and jealousy and envy and pride, I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by who we are in Christ that it would flavor our attitude and our emotions and the type of community and church that we have. That you would lead us into worship as we just dwell on who we are in you and our identity in Christ. 
that you would lead us to godly living, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude for who we are in you. We're so thankful for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.